Hi, this is Giuseppe. Hi, this is Anthony. And you're listening to For the Love of Sophia. A philosophy podcast brought to you by the Public Philosophy Project. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at publicphilproject at gmail.com. Enjoy the ride. Hey guys, we are back with this second part of, of the super interesting episode. Yeah, we are here with Dr. Sal Mignano, and we were talking about um, death, pretty much, right? Uh, that's been we're trying to define it, and Sal is giving us some few definitions. Uh, so, if you paid attention in the first episode, you realize that you can die. In you can be dead in two ways, <laughs> and we were analyzing. So, by what we have re-Christian as dead by the heart and dead by the mind, so to speak, right? You can be. It's Sal was talking about circulatory death, right, mm-hmm. and cerebral death. I'm assuming we were starting to make this distinction, if I remember correctly. And at the the end of the episode, I think it got really interesting because Sal had said something like this idea of watching someone no longer be there right like oh they're they're gone and this once again reminds me of this identity conversation that i mentioned in the first part with Locke. we mentioned the stuff about time but Locke also makes this distinction between like the identity of living things and then the identity of of person and it's funny because so in short the identity of material things is determined by their material composition so if i like rip off a piece of notebook paper it's now a fundamentally different piece of paper and then for living object uh, living objects <laughs> for living things it's different because you can grow or reduce in size and still be the same thing which is why your cat is the same cat it is 10 years later or the tree is the same tree and he places human in that category right not person but human is in that category and that human is defined by its participation in the same life. But he goes this step further and says, no, there's this thing called personal identity, and the presence or lack thereof is, is not necessarily contingent upon the other one. Because he says, let's say if you get into, I don't know, an accident with amnesia, and someone, or, or the Phineas Gage example, right? Something happens where a spike goes through their brain, and now they're fundamentally different. And in your case, someone is alive, but their personality is not there. So they're there, but they're not there. And I'm wondering how someone from your position thinks about this distinction between identifying a person as biological human, first and foremost, or defining a person as, I don't know what you want to call it, spirit, personality, something else? Well, I mean... As a pathologist, in general, we're, we're sort of uh, probably the most materialist of the, uh, of the medical specialties. You know, we, you know, we deal with um, tissues and cells and things like that. Generally, our patients don't talk back to us. So, um, you know, great, it's a little Great bit... job. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> but um, so from my personal perspective, like, uh, you know, it's... 
you know, it's, it's a, you know, if the person has a personality change or something to that effect, um, you know, I, you know, he's still alive and I can't, you know, I can't declare him dead no matter, you know, and, uh, I don't think any physician would want to do that unless they're maybe Dr. Kevorkian or, you know, are comfortable losing their medical license or something like that. But, uh, you know, as far as, yeah, personality changes or becoming a new person or, you know, basically losing so much of yourself that you become, you know, uh, a fraction of what you, what you once were um, or what have you. Um, I think those are very challenging for the people around those people, more so perhaps for the person to whom that is uh, happening to. Um, and, I, and I think that's it's difficult, and we we all need we always need to kind of um, exert caution when we do these things, exercise caution when we do these things, because uh, even considering this a scale, right, in personhood, uh, that might be problematic because we know that there are people that have less mental capacities, right, and if we don't separate this from their humanity then we get in trouble because then we need to call these people less human. But even if we don't do that, if we stay with the dead thing, these people are more dead, technically, right? It's, it's, it, seems, it seems interesting also that, you know, if you lose some functions, in theory, you're getting closer to this thing that we're describing as cerebral death, right? Because you're mm-hmm. saying even between Europe and the United States, uh, in Europe pretty much... If one part of the brain doesn't work, but the other one still does, you consider dead regardless, right? Well, for the United States, yeah. it needs to be 100% of it, which right. intru- introduces yeah. this idea of, of a scale where you can have different parts of your brain not working, so you can be more or less dead. Yeah. And, and that is fascinating, right? It, yeah, I mean, I guess there's a difference between uh, being dead and being uh, in a state of dying or mm. what have you. Um, and then I've heard some bioethicists say that, you know, perhaps we should consider a, um, a higher brain, um, you know, criteria for death because, you know, the, the European and British standard is brain stem, which is, you know, sort of the, 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 you know, from a practical perspective, if you lose your brain stem, that's it. You're probably not going to, you know, live much longer, um, regardless uh, you will probably not even be in a persistent vegetative state or anything like that you will probably die without assistance um and in america it's the whole brain standard but now there's this question of the higher brain the cerebrum the um you know uh the frontal lobe type stuff if that goes could we now consider someone deceased or dead um and that's kind of a thorny ethical issue i think uh, I mean, it's a, I think it's a big issue. I mean, even even now with the the standards that we use today, we run into some very thorny issues with uh, with regards to like who is dead and you know versus not. You know, you get into issues with like persistent vegetative states where you know the the lower brain is still functioning, the brainstem is still functioning, but the higher brain is turned off essentially. Um, you know, like the Terry Schiavo case, something like that. Um, you know, and so what do you do in those cases? And so now that's led to, I think, people considering uh, what's called death with dignity laws, uh, where, you know, you 
you remove assistance, say, say like you don't, you know, you, you remove feeding or you remove um, uh, other sorts of, you know, life-saving measures and, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, if, they're, if the person is in pain or suffering, you alleviate that with morphine or other, you know, sedatives and things like that, which could in itself uh, depress respiration and ultimately kill the person. Um, so, you know, there are laws like that in, in some states. Not, not, all this, not all states are actually supportive of that, only a handful as of now, I think 13 or so. Um, so, you know, that's, I think, one workaround, if you want to look at it that way, around mm-hmm. some of these standards. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was just, I was just doing some of this euthanasia stuff uh, in one of my ethics class, and there was this whole distinction between so voluntary euthanasia, non-voluntary, mm-hmm. and involuntary. And involuntary, we're just going to call murder, right? Because like, that's not yeah, even that's a thing that's idea. talked about. But it seems like what the, the question is, there are some people who are okay with euthanasia when it's voluntary, active, or passive, right? So I tell you of sound mind, like, if this ever happens to me, I want you to not keep me alive or something, right? And mm-hmm. the trickier issue seems to be these issues of like non-voluntary active and or passive passive euthanasia where you don't have direct or indirect consent from the patient but you have to rely on like the family so the spouse or the mother and father or sometimes the the medical professional right and this is like a, a big ethical question like should the doctor have the right to determine uh whether someone should be taken off of life support and from some perspective, it seems like they should be the most qualified to do so, right? Because they know when it's time or when it's not time. Right? If you look at this from a, you know, technical perspective, who better than that? In, <laughs> in, in theory, right? In theory. I mean, uh, I guess that's like uh, having... Not that I agree with it, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, I guess it's like having the philosopher king, right? Uh, be the overlord of society, sort of, you know? The yep. doctor should be the overlord of human health. Is that the idea? <laughs> yeah, we know that I mean, uh, philosopher kings damage all the time. Again, Mar- <laughs> Marcus Aurelius, philosopher, war for like 30 years of his reign. So I don't know how we will do with, with a doctor in charge of that. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. So I think in medicine in general, the movement now has to f- kind of shy away from sort of paternalistic um, you know, the so-called paternalistic, like, uh, uh, care where we basically tell the patient what they do and that's it. You know, that's, you know, that's what they're doing. Um, especially in issues when it comes to what end of life care. Um, so the easiest, uh, way to get around some of stu- to, to get around this sort of stuff is to ma- have an advanced directive. Um, so like, you know, a patient, you know, before they're in, um, the state of, Dying, or you know, before they get Alzheimer's or anything like that, they they write out in a will or a living will, and say, um, you know, if I'm incapacitated or whatever, I want no no other life saving measures. I want to be you know left to to essentially die. Um, the tricky thing happens when say there is no advanced directive, um, and now you know that's when families start squabbling and arguing. Um, you know, because they could say, hey, the, the patient's not in his right mind. You know, he's, you know, he's, he's getting a little loopy. 
Um, and sometimes, yeah, that, that is the case. Sometimes, you know, there is an altered mental status, you know, depending on, you know, what's happening to the patient. Say his liver's failing and all of a sudden, you know, there's a ton of ammonia in his blood, um, which really screws with the brain. Um, and so that becomes a, a, uh, an altered mental state. Is that person truly in the right state of mind to say, hey, I, I want to die and, you know, just let me go? Um, you know, or, uh, you know, does he need a proxy? And then so that becomes tricky, too, if they don't explicitly lay this out prior to the event of uh, uh, hospitalization. It's interesting because we seem to accept that idea that somebody, when it's in the right state of mind, right, is able to say, you know, if this happens to me, just do not, you know, let me go, Right. But then we frown upon things like suicide where somebody willingly takes his own life and we say, you know what? Uh, well, that's wrong. That's just the wrong thing. At least we are. I always say this. Suicide is this weird history. In the 1800s, the way to go. The 1900s, not good. Stoics, yes. Epicureans, no. So it depends. seems to be depending on the historical period where you're in there. But the point that I was making is... Uh, you know, it seems like that we make a difference. Uh, if I decide that I do not want to be aid to keep on living, it's okay. However, it is not okay for me to take my life unless, you know, and whatever that is, right? Or it is okay if I do this in a specific set environment with a professional doing it for me or aiding me doing mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm but it's not okay if I do this at home, right? So, um, no, it's cer- it is certainly an interesting distinction because uh, you're right, we do generally frown upon suicide. In fact, I would say that if someone is suicidal, we would maybe consider that an altered state of mind and tell them, you know, we, we call, um, you know, an ambulance on them or restrain them or do something to prevent that from happening. Um, and it's sort of an, an interesting distinction because, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, someone who is very depressed and, you know, is otherwise healthy, uh, wants to put a gun to his head and, you know, shoot himself as a very different scenario than, say, someone who's, you know, uh, in their late 80s, has terminal cancer, um, and, you know, there's really, you know, it's incurable uh, I think those are two different scenarios. I think like the the pre the um, the context and the preconditions sort of matter. Um, I was thinking the same thing because it seems like when so- the distinction is that we we judge your judgment based on the state of health you're in, right? So if you want to kill yourself when you are otherwise healthy and young and everything else is fine, we're like, woo, there's some kind of psychological problem, right? You shouldn't be allowed to do that. Let's stop it. However, when you're old and in pain, our attitude is like, I'd want to die if I were you. That makes sense for you to want to die, so we should do that. Which I'm wondering if it is also connected to the big distinction that we were doing during the first part of the episode between body and mind, right? It seems that we justify as wanting to die when it pertains to physical pain in our body, but we don't seem to justify this when it pertains maybe to the psychological pain, uh, because we think that it's strange. Because it's it's kind of 
you know, looking at the body-mind distinction at the mirror. Because when mm. we talk about it normally, when it's, we're talking about life, the mind stuff seems to be more important than the body stuff, right? But then when it comes about dying, the body stuff seems to be more important than the mind stuff, hmm. which is interesting. So, yeah, and I, I also find um, a lot of times the you know reasons that people who do kill themselves, why they kill themselves... Um, you know, it's often, say, financial things or, you know, um, one case that I remember from being a resident uh, was a 14-year-old girl who hanged herself because she had uh, broken up with her, her, her boyfriend or something had broken up with her and she was very distraught over it. And in, you know, cases like that, often we, you know, we think to ourselves like, Oh man, that, that you know, if they'd just given some time to cool off and you know, kind of think and get get over it, quote unquote, they they you know maybe it, things would have been different if we'd just been more you know like supportive or whatever, um, you know, as opposed to so it, it feels like uh, the hurdles for you know for say a younger person who decides to kill themselves or maybe perhaps at the time they don't seem uh, you know passable. But perhaps in the longer view, they are. But in mm-hmm. the context of like an 80-year-old guy who's got terminal cancer, uh, there's probably nothing anyone can do outside, you know, outside of perhaps a divine power, if you want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm wondering, uh, again, I'll be, I'll be the pro-suicide guy. Not really. The suicide pro. Not really, but, but I, you know, I'll... I'll I'll play this part because I think that there are some arguments to be made there. So according to what you're saying, Sal, for example, it seems to be that we think that this things that people do when they kill them, well, this thing that get in the way of people's life when they kill themselves, uh, we feel they are temporary, right? It's something that if you give enough time, this, this pain will go away. The pain of working up with somebody, if you give enough time, this thing will go away, right? And uh, let's assume that we let's consider that that to be true, right? But how long are we willing to wait for that kind of pain to go away, like for a psychological uh, kind of pain to go away? So, for example, if I'm and let's let's take away the the breaking up with a boyfriend because it's like I, I don't even want to entertain that as a possibility. But let's think rather of somebody who's depressed, who's very depressed, and this depression brings pain to this person's life. He impedes this person's normal and functional way of living. How long should we say this person needs to wait until he can consider this thing chronical and therefore chronic, not chronical, chronic, and say, hey, uh, maybe you have the right to think of ending your life? Because if it's just a matter of time, I, I mean, if I'm depressed for 10 years straight and there's nothing seems to help, no medicine, no therapy, no nothing, how is that different from cancer? So in, in other words, I think you're asking, like, what is the minimum contextual requirement for us to be able to say your desire to want to kill yourself? Yep, that's justified. That's rational. Correct. Just like, just like we do with cancer, right? We, because it seems that with the body is X amount of pain and this thing is, doesn't seem to go away. So mm-hmm. uh, what is the... How can we translate? Sure. Um, so, and I think 
you know, I, maybe I was a little imprecise about, you know, you know, time and getting over it and stuff like that. And maybe I apologize if I came across a little insensitive. No, 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 no. Um, no worries. <laughs> I really didn't mean to. Not with us. That's, that's, oh, good, good. Um, so, but, you know, I think there's like a, a certain, you know, how, what are we able to live with, right? So I feel like, for instance, um, you know, say a relationship ending or something like that, it's it's going to be very acutely painful and, you know, it'll probably actually sting for many years, perhaps. Perhaps you never really get over it. Um, but it becomes, so, you know, but I think um, as years go on, it, it becomes less of a, um, say, like a, a hemorrhaging, you know, wound and more of a, you know, kind of a chronic ache. Um, and, uh, you know, just like someone say with like, uh, you know, fibromyalgia or one of those chronic pain type disorders, like it's not inherent, it's, it's probably not going to kill you. Um, it will very much cause some discomfort in your life, but it's probably, you know, sort of something you can, uh, work with. Um, and there are strategies to kind of help alleviate the pain a little bit. Um, so I think perhaps that's a distinction. Whereas with something like cancer or um, a very bad heart, you know, a coronary artery blockage, there might not be much that you could do for that person. So it seems like it's an issue of potential for a better future. Because if you break up with someone, it's like, yeah, that's not good, and that's going to affect you for a given amount of time, but you could still live a normal or exceptional, fulfilled life after that. Versus if you are basically doomed to a life where you are in pain all the time and there's no real possibility of that changing, then that seems to be the context that grounds uh, these kinds of decisions. Yeah, it seems to be, it seems to be the case as well. Uh, what you guys are saying, but I'm wondering again. The example of of depression is is different, though, right? Because again, if you are affected seriously affected by that, is it a, again? Can you really function properly? Can you really function the way you uh, the way you would do? Can you live a fulfilled life, right, Anthony? This, you were saying, can you live a good life even in that case? Because again, if I have, and again. Thank God I have nothing like fibromyalgia or anything. Uh, but I'm assuming that there are certain things that you can do to alleviate the physical pain. Uh, but then again, with something so crippling as depression can be, I don't. I, again, it's hard for me to to make this hard cut distinction. Cancer, okay, you can die. Depression, you can't. I don't know. Well, it seems like we first got to. Um, draw the distinction between the type of depression, right? Because you could, to brush with broad strokes, say there's this quote-unquote content-driven depression where, like, you're, you're sad about something, and that's something that's not going to be forever, right? Versus this more, like, clinical, biologically, chemically imbalanced that causes depression. And that's, that's the one I think you're talking about, right? Yeah, where yeah, exactly. you can't do anything about it besides yeah. take medication, perhaps? I'm not even sure if I called the first one depression, actually. Uh, they're just being sad. No, right, uh, right, right. I uh, think I would yeah. agree. I, ju- I just meant to make yeah. sure we're clear. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm talking about the, the, the clinical one. It's Again, it's hard to tell somebody, hey, this is, this is not. And again, it's funny because for everything else, we seem to value this mind more. But then when it comes to pain, now that's fake. 
<laughs> I mean, it's it's challenging. I think partially because pain and um, depression tend to be very subjective, right? So uh, there's nothing. I mean, we we try to like uh, create objective criteria for unipolar, bipolar depression, and so on and so forth, but. Um, you know, it's very difficult to truly, you know, feel someone else's pain or feel someone else's depression. Um, and it is a serious issue. I don't mean to like, um, you know, to try and minimize its significance. I mean, it's so it's so significant that if you look at the CDC's uh, top 10 uh, causes of death, um, suicide ranks number 10. Uh, I mean, that's uh, wow. pretty significant. That's like, that is uh, 50,000 uh, people roughly a year and die by suicide. Um, so it's not an insignificant thing. And depression is not an insignificant uh, problem. Um, but no, but just to clarify, I'm not saying, I don't think you think that or anybody thinks that in between us three. I'm just saying it was interesting that uh, we have this, again, this tendency of, of kind of dismiss culturally to dismiss that, mm-hmm. right? Uh, again, we seem to be thinking of that when we think about better health care, for example, we're always thinking of me going to the doctor and getting exam- physical examination, but we rarely think of that kind of health care, right? That's almost an afterthought. Uh, I don't even know. I think the health insurance treat that differently, right? I mean, yeah, it's a, I feel like it's, a, it's almost like dentistry, <laughs> <You know? laughs> unfortunately. It's sort Correct. of an afterthought. I mean, I don't. You know, and I think that's kind of a bad, a bad situation in our healthcare system. And that, and you, you know, we, the episode before uh, this one, we were talking about science, and I think that it is interesting that health is being delegated completely to to the science, to this medicine, or to science in general. And I think that what we are experiencing here is this disconnect that exists typical of modern sciences which is this quantitative aspect of things and of course quantifying pain and it's difficult and quantifying how painful it is a psychological kind of pain is even more difficult Uh, so we kind of dismiss it because of that and as you were saying before describing your specific part of the profession uh, it's more seems to be paying attention more to the materialistic materialistic aspect of stuff just by definition, just because the way science works, modern science works, and we dismiss anything that can be, that at least can be not accurately quantified, I want to say. And pain and psychological pain seems to be one of those things. Well, it seems like this is why clinical psychology is a distinct discipline from, like, biological stuff, right? Because you need to go beyond these base-level things because if you stick with that, you know... uh, scientific viewpoint let's call it um it's not able to by definition get at those things right because very often there's not even a belief in that quote-unquote inner thing that's that's happening uh with depression yeah it's i mean i i kind of uh, yeah i agree that psychology is sort of clinical psychology is sort of its own um you know its own thing for that reason, but it's also important to integrate it with the rest of medicine. I, I would argue that medicine um, itself, as a whole, is not uh, is not a you know science in the traditional sense. Mm. Um, I would argue that there is actually a lot of 
you know, wiggle. There's a lot of like, uh, I guess, art to medicine is a cliche that they put it. Um, even in pathology, there is like some bit of interpretation, a bit of like just judgment, not relying strictly on uh, objective hard fact. Um, so, and that's where things get sort of interesting, <laughs> I think, in our profession. And say like when a medical examiner has to declare someone uh, dead by suicide, they have to do like a fairly thorough examination of intent. You know, they can't just... Uh, you know, make assumptions. They have to like make sure that the person had the proper intent to want to kill himself. It's not just an accident. So wait a minute, because that's interesting. I, I didn't know that the, the the medical examiner is the one who has to establish there was. Well, I I think I knew that, but I didn't think you guys were looking at the intent of it. I think you were looking at. So. How does that work? I mean, how do you know that this person was really trying to kill himself and it wasn't instead just a? Oh accident? yeah, it gets. It gets tricky. Um, so like a medical examiner, when they have to you know, classify a manner of death, um, in which there's, there's uh, maybe I should define what manner of death is. So manner of death is a, a, f- a fairly legal sort of a categorization of death. So, you know, the categories include natural, which is, you know, most, of, most deaths are natural. Um, almost all deaths in hospitals tend to be natural. Accidents. Um, suicides, homicides, and then lastly, undetermined. And then some other jurisdictions, like New York City, for instance, they have other classifications too. I think um, therapeutic complication is listed as a manner of death in New York City. But for most part, um, most counties stick to the, the, the big five. And of those, um, the only one where you have to establish intent um, is suicide. Um, and that's partially because Let's say, um, and here's a common scenario sometimes, and well, somewhat common scenario in medical examiner's offices, is autoerotic asphyxiation. Um, the person does not intend to die generally uh, doing uh, that action. Uh, he just, he dies as a consequence of, I don't know, poor planning, whatever you want to call it, or, um, uh, you know, something goes wrong. Um, Whereas, you know, someone who leaves behind a note um, and, you know, settles his affairs and uh, so on and so forth, hangs himself in his closet, there's, you know, there's a little bit more of an intent, um, you know, there. Um, And then also, uh, you know, most medical examiner's offices have investigators, and those investigators go out to, say, talk to the family members or if the person had roommates or a spouse or something, they talk and interview those people. Um, they investigate the scene and they try to, you know, they give that information to the medical examiner. The medical examiner then decides, okay, it looks, looks like it's most likely a suicide uh, hmm. versus an accident. But it gets tricky, like say someone who is, um, you know, a schizophrenic and he's in the thoroughs of a psychotic episode and say he jumps in front of a train. Um, you know, because he's under the belief that, you know, that he's Superman or something like that um, and can stop the train or whatever. Do you classify that as a suicide or do you classify that as an accident? And if you don't know all the information, you know, that gets even trickier. I was going to ask because then that makes the definition of suicide much more complicated because it's not merely a matter of whether one causes one's death you have to ask whether that cause is direct or indirect, intentional, unintentional. So if someone dies as a result of 
autoerotic asphyxiation, for example, and, and it was accidental, that wouldn't be a suicide. Is that right? No, on paper? That's correct. Yeah. Because they weren't that, intentionally directly causing it? That's right. Yeah. They, they did not go into that activity with the intent of dying. So somebody jumping off, uh, off the uh, 30th floor thinking they're Superman, they're not killing themselves. Well, that's, that's where it gets tr- That's the tricky part. Because someone, some medical examiners would probably argue, yeah, that is um, a suicide. Uh, but others would argue maybe it was an ac- it's an accident because he was not in the right state of mind. And he says, you know, I think I can fly. He's under a mistaken assumption. <laughs> and it's accidental because that's not, he did not really want to die. The other interesting <laughs> one that people, the medical examiners often grapple with is a Russian roulette. Um, some people consider Russian roulette to be accidental. Others say it's suicide no matter what. Um, and, uh, you know... Because there's no who in you know who in their right mind would ever play Russian roulette is sort of the argument for calling you already, it you already have to accept the possibility that it might happen, right? So like that kind mm-hmm. of shows some kind of intent, even if it's loose. Right, right, yeah. And um, there's other ways. The other way to get around that whole thing is just call it undetermined. <laughs> just, there you go. It's, it's just it's just insane. I mean, I, I was thinking of the Russian roulette thing. It's just a little parenthesis there. It's like, do you do you get people doing that? I mean, what's the percentage in the United States? I, I mean, oh, I don't know how the statistics are off the top of my head, but I think we had one when I was a resident in Tacoma. We had one guy who, did, who died by Russian roulette, and I wow. think yeah, our medical examiner there called it suicide. Wow, that's yeah. that's. But it, it's it's interesting this this thing, this definition, and again, that seems to be com- to be completely. Uh, determined by our social, um, how can we say, determination, right? Uh, it, it seems it seems to be that, that. I mean, what's the objective criteria there? I don't know. There is none, really. I mean, it's a, it's a it's essentially judgment and you know trying to put together a story, um, and that's really what you're trying to do a lot of times in death in uh, these in investigations of deaths of outside of uh, homes is you're trying to put together a story what's the most likely you and know I, thing and i'm thinking if i don't know this may, might be a stretch i'm wondering if this is not true for the entire endeavor of death and dying right we're just we're just constructing a narrative around what happens to one's body and and mine and we we have some we make some determinations and we try to we have a script that we need to follow right which are the rules and raw the rules and laws and regulations that we have in place to determine what it means to be dead and what it means to be alive and we stick to this plot but then we feel your job seems to be the one of writing the story filling the blank that can be filled still but it seems to be a narrative and i'm and again i'm not I'm not trying to say that death doesn't exist, right? Uh, but it seems to be at least more complex than what we think it is to establish what this ent- entity process, I don't even know how to call it, is. Absolutely, yeah. Because, um, you know, that's part of the problem, too, with uh, death investigation in, in general is that, uh, say, you know, let's move into, like, the legal system if there's a homicide um, and let's say, you know, um, a vehicle was used to kill someone, um, 
90% of the time you'd call that an accident. Um, if, you know, because a lot of times the person driving the vehicle does not intend to kill mm. the uh, pedestrian, let's say. But if you can prove that he, you know, that the, the guy driving the vehicle was going like outrageously fast and like he saw someone he hated and therefore he like decided to run him down and kill him, um, that would be a homicide. And so now we bring, say we bring this case to court. Um, another pathologist or medical examiner or whatever could say, you know, I, I don't know. It could be. It could still just be an accident, or maybe you know, the the evidence that you're trying to establish uh, establishing that the the driver was malicious and wanted to kill this pedestrian is faulty. So therefore, maybe the best way to declare this death is an undetermined death. And so that's you know. So in court, you often see some you see battles like that sometimes, where uh, people are trying to kind of undermine the the narrative that say the, the county medical examiner puts forward. Um, so there's a it's a lot less objective than you know we probably like to believe. Which mm. is again fascinating and uh, and uh, and interesting. And I so. And I'm thinking, so basically, Sal, your job is the one of a writer or a poet. The pathologists, <laughs> pathologists are like poets and writers. They, I'm a they, 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 poet. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's, it's, <laughs> but it seems to be, right? It seems more and more, as I, I mean, it seems clear to me that really we are writing narratives about this thing, uh, starting with deciding when somebody's dead and when somebody's not dead, deciding what the cause of the death was, uh, and all these things, right? I, I have a question. So while we were having this conversation, I feel like I had this question since the beginning, but I held back uh, because <laughs> I remember just because it'd be too obvious, because I remember years ago watching this interview with Larry King and they were like, you know, what what would you ask, What was the first question you would ask Osama bin Laden? Not saying you're Osama bin Laden, but they were like, what's the first question you would ask? And he said, well, I definitely wouldn't say why did you plot to take down the Twin Towers first, right? Because that, like, wouldn't be interesting. That would ruin the whole conversation. So the thing I was wondering, it's kind of Uh two-pronged. The one question is, do you think, so given that you deal with bodies in a way that most people do not engage with bodies, do you think that this has in any way altered your perception of human bodies so that when you're with live or living people you kind of think of any bodily things that happen in a different way than you did prior to having this experience okay um oh is that is that you said there's a second prong too right is that yeah the, the that second it? one's a little different but i don't want to throw too much oh you don't want to spoil it okay got it yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um so yeah interacting with live people is it different now <laughs> like do you view them more mechanically i honestly no uh i think like when i good to know <laughs> no i really don't like you know when i'm doing my job yes of course and then like say someone is describing some you know medical ailment to me or something which you know not uncommon um you know then yeah then i start thinking more me- mechano you know mechanically uh, i suppose you can uh but no, in general, no. Me talking to you and, and uh, Nini, uh, I just don't know. I don't, I don't see you guys as, like, weird automatons or something like that. Because I was wondering, like, if you were with someone, a loved one, and they suddenly got this issue, 
right? That was, there was some kind of ailment. And then you were left to deal with it. I, like, I, I had this question, if, if it would be more instinctual or easy for you to flip that switch between person and object. Like, are, like are you more easily able to see something as an object versus a person? I mean, it's, hmm, that's a, that's an interesting question. I think, I, I think I can sort of flip between the two, I suppose. Um, but I try to, when I'm interacting with live people, uh, you know, I try to, you know, make, keep that on switch. I try not to, you know, objectify people uh, as much as I possibly can. Even like, even when they're describing stuff to me, like, um, you know, like in my head, I'm like, okay, I think I know what's going on with this person, but at the same time, I don't want to be like, you know, you know, cold about it or whatever. I just, you know, want to listen to them and, you know, kind of try to feel what they're feeling as best as I can. I try to be empathetic as, as much as I can, mm-hmm. uh, rather than being like a, you know, a cold, you know, truly cold, like okay. a- analytical per, you know. You don't want to be like the guy that looks at the cow and sees like all kind of meats going on no. there. <laughs> No, no. Or American Psycho to, tr- or something. No, good God, no. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but if it, you know, but once it's down on the table and, you know, that's what they're, they want me to do, then that's, that's what you do. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Mm. So, and then so here was the other related question I had. It's, it's similar, but the question is now not about bodies. Do you think being in your profession has changed fundamentally your experience with death? itself and if so how absolutely yeah oh i think i think it's tremendously changed my um experience of of death and uh just you know my perception of it um i used to think um i don't know that hmm, how do i put this but i think now i feel like i'm more comfortable with it as a as a concept uh it's on my mind a lot um, you know, and it doesn't frighten me that, to think that, like, you know, mm. we're all going to die uh, or that I'm going to die one day. Um, it's just not as, it's not as frightening to me as it used to be. I used to be very afraid of that, um, of, you, know, you know, dying or whatever. I remember, like, as a kid, if I felt like, you know, I don't know. I was a bit of a hypochondriac when I was younger, so like if I, if I felt like a little <laughs> absolutely the same. That make that makes three of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I was you know I'm kind of a pudgy guy, and I was a pudgy kid, and a pudgier kid, I would argue. And like um, you know, I'd say I felt like a chest pain or something. I'm like, oh god, this is it. <laughs> it's, it's a heart attack coming. Right, right. I knew I should have eaten better, and you know, and I was definitely afraid of dying. Um, and now, like, it's, you know, yeah, it's going to happen. Um, and it happens to everyone. And it doesn't bother me as much. What about other people, though? Because I think it's one thing to be comfortable with the death of oneself. But what about the death of other people and, and the idea of, of losing other people? Yeah, that's, I, I don't think that, that has gotten easier. I mean, I think about, um, you, know, my, my, you know, my wife and, uh, you know, my mom and, uh, you know my my family and and I think you know I yeah that 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 does fill me with dread still like you know that they may die I mean not because like I think you know it'll be bad for them necessarily but it'll be bad for me <laughs> um and uh you know bad for 
their community you know they're you know they're, it's gonna the loss is irreplaceable so I, I don't know if that so much has changed for me like it's uh, you know I was hoping that you would say yes that changed because that at that point I knew what we needed to do to eliminate this dread of death and dying, which was like, we, you know, we should make mandatory a four-year rotation in a morgue with somebody, and we'll be fine. But instead, that doesn't seem to. Oh no! To no I think that would make us view everyone as mere objects, and that's the only way we wouldn't feel any pain at loss, which is not <laughs> good. I, I think, but the, but uh, the one caveat is though, I think my perspective has changed perhaps from say um, when I was younger, um, is that. You know, if if I had my mindset that I did, say, when I was in my 20s or um, teens or whatever, I would say, like, you know, go full in, you know, make sure you save my, you know, save my loved one, you know, do what you have to do. Whereas now I can say, please don't do that. Like, it's, you know, it's, you're causing, you're causing them unnecessary, like, just discomfort. pain, discomfort. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I don't want that. So I think that perhaps has changed a little bit, but it's the, the the element of me wanting them to be, you know, alive and healthy, and you know, and the the thought of being uncomfortable about them dying is has, that hasn't gone away. But I think I'd be okay with you know allowing the plug to be pulled. We'll put it that way. And it seems like we wind up back in ancient Greece, right? So to paraphrase Socrates, it's not life itself that we're concerned with and that we're worried about but you know the good life right so mm-hmm. sal thank you so much for being on yeah. here thank you thank you guys thank, thank you, you thank very you. much this has been a real treat uh you know a long time listener and uh you know i'm glad uh, thank you. glad I could, you guys could you know have me on thank you thank you again. absolutely so we hope to have some other people on here um we could talk about this forever but i think we're over time but i, ha- I had a good time so th- thank you again we'll yeah. see you guys around Thank you. See you later.